And everyone else who's going to remain for the preaching of God's Word, I encourage you to turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 16. John chapter 16 is where we're going to be reading this morning. And if you are able, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word and honoring the Word of God. I'm going to read our, our, the first 15 verses of John 16. Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember what I told them. I say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. And bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask this morning that your word would rightly come to your people. We pray that your servant would rightly speak the word and that there would be no distractions coming from him or anything else. Lord, we desperately need the truth today. We desperately need to know more of you today. We thank you for Bibles. We thank you for your spirit enlightening us to understand the word. We thank you for the corporate gathering of the saints that we can meet here together in all openness, inviting all who would come and listen to come and to hear the words of life. Lord, may they be life to us today, and may what is said be glorifying to you, as is, that is our charge every Lord's Day, is to worship and glorify you. Bless this time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. To start off this morning, I wanted to ask just a couple of questions to get us thinking about this topic that we have this morning. What do you call a person who omits pertinent but unpleasant details about a proposed venture? Or what do, you, what do you call a person who spins the message to make it sound more appealing than it really is? What do we call a person who allows the hearer to make assumptions about the subject at hand that aren't really true about it? What do we call those people? We call them swindlers. We call them hustlers. We call them the proverbial used cars salesmen. But what are they ultimately? Ultimately, those people are liars. Truth delivered straightly with no spin, no sugarcoating, 
It may be difficult for us to receive at first, but nevertheless, it equips us to act accordingly to what is actually real, what is actually true. It equips us to have our well-being best seen and met and the glory of God ultimately upheld. Proverbs 25, 13 says, like, a, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. That first cold may be bracing, but it's timely and it's in season and it ultimately refreshes the ground. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, the hard things, the surgery of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. See, if we're told truths that we wish didn't exist, nevertheless, we're still equipped to navigate the reality, unpleasant though it may be. And because the truth always does something, Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32, what the truth does. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's what it always does. The truth is freeing because it's the truth and it allows you to behave according to what is actually real, not according to what we wish to be real. I had this happen to me my junior year of college, my end of my sophomore year of college, I decided I wanted to play baseball again. I got burned out in high school. I wanted to play baseball again, so I went and asked the coaches of the Aggie baseball team in the sophomore year, and they said, nah. And they said, wait a minute, what hand do you throw with? I said, I'm left-handed. They said, okay, we'll come back in the fall. We have tryouts. I said, okay. So I came back to the fall and tryouts, and there was like 80 guys there, a lot of guys who had played junior college, a lot of guys who had played at smaller schools and were trying to get a spot on the team. They were all faster than me, all taller than me, all stronger than me, all these things, but I had one great advantage the left hand and he there was there was got there had to be like 40 pitchers there and that's what I was there to do and so over in the the uh, the tunnels where we were pitching anytime a lefty came up the the junior coach there would call the head coach over and he'd come and watch the lefty and as soon as he was done he would leave so I felt bad for all the right-handed kids coming after the left-handed guy to go and the coach is leaving now <laughs> he was coming to watch the other guy and so then the tryout was dragging on for a while and then he eventually just said all right look we're maybe gonna take one or two guys. So if you're not left-handed, just go home. He sent everybody home, 80 guys home, and there was four left, me and three other guys. And the tryout went on and they got to pitch live on the mound and I'm just shagging fly balls in center field out in Olsen and then he ends the tryout and that's it. And so I was like, I gotta, I gotta know, I gotta ask, what happened? So I went to the coach and I said, Coach Childress, I just was wondering how come I didn't get to throw on the mound when the other three guys got to throw. And he said, well, if you're too old, you're already a junior. I was like, well, there it is. That's the truth. <laughs> I'm too old. He said, well, if you get hurt, then I wasted a spot on you and you don't have any years left after that. So it would be a total waste for me to do anything with you. I'm like, Well, thank you, Coach Childress. I sure do appreciate it. Now I'm going to go on and live according to what is real. I am too old to do this. And the truth has been told to me plainly. And now I get it. And I could go on and give my life to other ventures and just let baseball be what it is, a fun thing to watch occasionally on TV. Jesus is in this moment like that, as we read earlier. Jesus, like a general with his officers, because they are still Jesus and the 11 in the upper room, he's going to tell his disciples some unwelcome truths. And he already has been. If you were here last week, you know that. In love, he's going to help them navigate the coming war. Not... What they would have chosen certainly is what is happening, 
nevertheless, that is what is real. And in grace, he tells them that supernatural reinforcements are coming. The Holy Spirit. So the text breaks down in, in three ways, three headings. Perilous times, verses 1 through 6. The Spirit's powerful presence in the world, verses 7 through 11. And the Spirit's powerful presence in the church, verses 12 through 15. The perilous times, the war, and then the, the spiritual reinforcements that are coming. So in verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now we read last week that the word hate appears upwards of 10 times, just a little south of 10 times in that section. And Jesus says, I'm telling you all of these things to keep you from falling away. These things, everything that he said in the upper room so far, going back to chapter 13, focusing on chapter 15, but he's told them the range of things, the love of Christ, the love that brothers and sisters ought to show one another in the church, the world's hatred for Christ and hatred for his followers. He's told them all of these things for a reason. He's telling them these things up front to strengthen them. When you know what's coming beforehand, you're prepared to stand during. You're prepared to endure. He's preventing shock from the inevitable pain. He's, that's what he's teaching them to do. He's, they're being made aware of a plan for enduring, which is loving for Christ to tell them that. Loving the pain. Loving, uh, he's loving the disciples by telling them this to endure before the pain comes, before it actually gets there. Here's what's coming, and here's how you're going to endure it. Here's what it's going to ultimately gain. It was ultimately going to get. He's letting them know beforehand because it strengthens you to know what is coming, as painful as it may be. You can, you're equipped to endure. You're not broadsided. You're not confused. And you understand why it was going towards those reasons. When you're coaching a quarterback to run the option, you have to tell him, look, you're going to get lit up. But the point is, because you can shuttle the ball over to the guy running beside you, and you get tackled, and he runs in. So it feels worth it. I know it's coming. I know it's going to hurt. But that's part of the plan. And that ultimately leads to ultimate victory. So I get it. It's okay. But he says that he's doing these things. I'm telling you these things to keep them from doing something specific. It says falling away to keep you from falling away. What is the bigger threat to the church? What is the bigger threat to any Christian? Death or apostasy? What's the, what's the bigger issue to have to wrestle with? Being martyred is not the worst thing that can come from persecution. Denying the faith and abandoning Christ that's the worst thing that can happen from persecution. He's preparing these disciples for this, that apostasy, that's the word that means denying the faith, that's the greatest threat. That's what he, he said. I didn't, I'm telling you these things to keep you from being uncomfortable. I'm telling you these things to keep you from dying. No, I'm telling you these things to keep you from falling away from me. That's why he's built it up. That's why he's been speaking in 13, 14, and 15. All of this is to keep you strong when the heat gets turned up. Because the worst thing that could happen is that you deny the faith 
and you be shown to be what John says in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us because they were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that all are not of us. That's the worst thing that could ever happen. Jesus is preparing them to suffer so that that doesn't happen. When suffering comes, our temptation is do whatever we can, spare no expense to make it stop. And we've seen our world do that, our whole world do that in the past two years. Do whatever you can to make it stop at no cost whatsoever. And we do that in microcosms personally ourselves. If we have to deny Christ and the truth claims of the Bible, then we'll, that will do that. That will make it stop. And Jesus says that's the worst thing that could happen. That's what I'm trying to keep you from doing. Death just sends the Christian home. Apostatizing sends the imposter to hell. Jesus does not want that to happen. He's building into true disciples, warning of what is coming. That's why he's been saying all of these things. From the things that we immediately gravitate to, the love that we have as brothers and sisters, the love of Christ that cannot be assailed, the peace that he promises for us, but also the inevitable hatred of the world. All of this is in preparation. All of this is to equip them for it because what persecution does is it separates the wheat and the tares. It separates false teachers from from converts, true converts, because false teachers, false disciples won't suffer for what they don't really believe. They'll just give up, say, never mind, I'm not in for this. When the heat gets turned up, fire reveals what is actual gold and what is gold painted wood blocks. Because this one burns and this one just melts and becomes purer. That's what the fire does. That's what Jesus is preparing these for. This is not a loss of salvation that we're talking about. It's an unveiling of what was always a counterfeit conversion. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm after now. I'm telling you how bad it's going to be now so that if you're going to cut and run, you're going to do it now. And somebody already has cut and run, have they not? Judas is already out the door. He's already out of the room. So he knows who he's speaking to now. And then we talked about, or Jesus talked about last time, the hatred of the world. And Jesus now in verse 2 in John 16 is going to say, this is explicit examples of the hatred of the world. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. This still is Jesus' loving preparation. Explicit examples of the world's hatred. Not, not theory, not, not abstract. Here's what they're going to do put you out of the synagogues and that's already happened in john's gospel has it not if you go back to chapter 9 the blind man the man born blind that jesus heals it takes up that whole chapter verse 22 it has a parenthetical statement that john adds in he says his parents the blind man's parents said these things because they feared the jews they said don't talk to us talk to him they feared the jews for the jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess jesus to be the christ he was to be put out of the synagogue and then it happens to their son. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out, out of the synagogue. John 12, 42, right before the upper room discourse begins, this is what the state of the nation of Israel is in. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in Jesus. Fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. This is already happening. Anybody who identifies with Jesus is put out of the synagogue. And if you remember those past moments in John 9 and John 12, when we talked about why that's so detrimental, it's not just that you can't come to church. It's that you can't function in society. 
your credibility as a marketplace person to sell your goods or to get a job is now diminished, almost extinct. You can't even receive a proper burial if you're not in the synagogue. If you've been removed from that, then when you die, they're just going to toss your carcass into a dry creek bed. That's, you're, you're cut off socioeconomically from the synagogue. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's going to cost you. And it did cost the apostles that. If you read the book of Acts, it, it does cost them that. You become a cultural pariah. But then he goes on to say, if that weren't bad enough, that people are going to kill you. And they're going to think that they're worshiping God by doing that. Now, can't we see Saul before he becomes Paul in the book of Acts as that quintessential representative? He's just he's doing everything by the book. He's going to the to the Sanhedrin to get authority and clout so that he can go to Damascus and slaughter these Jews. And when Stephen is being killed, he's like, let me take care of your coats because this will be my act of worship while you're worshiping and slaughtering this guy with bricks. He believed he was serving God by killing these Christians. Up until and the book of Acts, so we know that Paul gets converted and he becomes the chief evangelist of the church. But the persecution still goes on in the book of Acts. Up until you get to chapter 19, all of the, the persecution against the followers of Christ are people with Bibles. And chapter 19 is when you finally get to a pagan-started, pagan-led revolt and persecution against Paul, against the, against the missionaries. But up until then, it's always the Jews. And the Jews will go to the next town. That you came, yeah, you were in Thessalonica. Well, we're going to follow you to Corinth, and we're going to start this problem up all over again. You were in Illyricum, and we're going to follow you to Laodicea. We are going to follow you to Lystra and make them, we're going to stir them up so that they hate you. That's who's killing them, people with Bibles. And that did happen in the lives of disciples, but how is it true for us today? Because certainly he's speaking to them and through them to us. The professing Christ has now become, in the Western world, a social liability. It, did, it used to be that in the West, Western world, talking about Europe and then all the way to the United States and other countries that were remotely connected, you couldn't get elected sheriff or dog catcher if you weren't a member of a church, if they couldn't find your name on the rolls of some church. But now you only have something to lose if your name is on the rolls of church and you're actively involved in it and we can peg you down as believing something about God, about Christ, about the Holy Spirit. Now living morally can keep you from any office. No longer expected to gain anything by faking Christianity. You used to gain a lot by faking Christianity. We don't anymore. People lose jobs, they lose opportunities, lose friends for following Christ. But persecution comes when Jesus says those who think that they're offering something to God, that they think that they're making service to God, that means it's coming from inside the church. Now let's think about who's throwing currently in our day and age, the heaviest, sharpest stones at people who are willing to, churches who are willing to doggedly hold to Scripture. The greater evangelical world, that's who's throwing stones. That's who hates it. Now, 
and think about even further than that. So that's evangelicalism. But let's just go to people who would just call themselves liberal churches. They have one enemy in the world, only one, and it's true churches. They're friends with the world. The world loves them and says, go do what you're going to do. We're not coming to your church on Sunday morning because that's way too early and we want to keep our money. But great on you. Way to go in affirming all those sins and all those horrible things. Their only enemy is a true church. That's the only person they have to criticize. They won't criticize the culture because they love the culture. So their enemy is us. See, the ire, the angst, the hatred from professing churches and professing church members is almost always more virulent than the most committed atheist can work himself up to do. I was listening to a podcast, an interview this week with uh, German pastors. And we know Germany, that's, you know, 500 years ago, is, is the seedbed of Protestant theology, of justification by faith alone. That's where it starts. And now they have a state church that is Lutheran, meaning after Luther, uh, that could not be more apostate, could not be affirming more uh, sin, more wickedness, and saying that it is good. But these, these guys that are listening to, they weren't a part of a state church. They were a part of what they called the free evangelical church. Stuff like us. And they said on this podcast that the most opposition that they get is from within their own denomination. Not the liberal state church, not the Catholic church, and not just rank secularists. Their own denomination is saying, stop talking about biblical sexuality. Stop insisting on biblical inerrancy. Inside their own denomination, they are alone. And they couldn't be more whittled down from the secular culture to the Lutheran church to the Catholic church to now this evangelical church in Germany. They are alone in their town. That's it. They are a mega church with 250 people. This is where we live. This is the Western world. Jesus is making clear in these few verses at the beginning, these six verses at the, at the beginning of John 16, continuing on from the last 12 verses or so from John 15, that he's making clear we are on a battleship and not a cruise ship. That he is a Navy admiral, not a cruise ship director. And there's no bait and switch. This is all up front. Jesus is telling everybody on the front end, this is before he dies. This is before anyone's ever called a Christian, a Christ one. Before the church begins in the new covenant, he says, following me will cost you up to and including your earthly life. Very little said about your life getting better after following Christ. A whole lot said about your life getting worse physically after following Christ. There's that old golfer saying that when you shank a shot, you're on the fairway, you shank it, it goes in the woods, hits a tree, bounces out, hits the cart path, bounces off of that, and it lands on the green. What does everybody in your group say? Somebody's living right. You must be living right. What if you played golf with Joseph, Job, and Paul? What, what would you say? You must be living right because you got 10 extra strokes on every time you swing. And every time you hit it, it goes 40 miles into the woods. You must be living right because all they do, Job, Joseph, and Paul, is obey and things get worse. They just obey and, and then it gets harder. Joseph's life, he obeys his dad and then his brother stole him in a hole. He obeys his dad and his brothers sell him into Egypt. He obeys his slave master and he gets thrown into jail. He shows love by obeying God, shows love to the cupbearer and to the baker, and then they forget him for three years. 
He obeys God and things get worse. Same for the Apostle Paul. But Christ says, nevertheless, though they harm you, though they banish you from the synagogue, says Jesus, you will never be banished from the kingdom of God. Never be banished from the kingdom of God. Verse 3, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. What's the reason again for the world's hatred? It's not because of your harsh tone. It's not because you just sound too confident about what you believe. It's not because of your poor delivery or your odd personality. It's not because of your lack of relevance. Why do they hate you? They will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. That's why. Only because they don't know God. People lash out emotionally against the people of God because they don't know God. Goats are not drawn to be with the sheep not because sheep and goats don't get along, but because goats can't hear the voice of the shepherd. They can't hear it. For someone to have a negative, visceral, irrational, emotional response to a pastor, to a church, or to just a faithful Christian, it can only mean one thing. They don't know God. That's it. What's the example? What we said already in John chapter 9, the blind man. I mean, really think about that illustration. This man has been blind into adulthood. And then when the Pharisees come to him, they don't go, wow, we can't believe it. You can see? This is a man. Wow, let's celebrate. Let's get everybody into the synagogue, everybody into the temple. This guy's life was doomed. But now he can not only earn a living, he can participate in society, he can see God's word written out, he can see God's temple and the imagery that's supposed to be pointing towards Christ. He can now take care of his parents when they get too old to take care of themselves because he can see now. What are they concerned with? Who did this? And he says, I don't know. Well, what do you think about him? I think he's probably a pretty good guy. No, no, no. What do you think about him? They're hammering him, and then when he won't give in and say that the guy who healed him is a sinner, what do they do? That's it. You're out. You get, you get punished as the guy who just got healed by your leaders who are supposed to be spiritually shepherding your soul? Why aren't they, why are they more concerned about the healer than the miracle? Why are they more concerned with the man's opinion about the healer? Because Jesus healed him and then just walked away. He comes and finds him later, but he just walked away. It wasn't like they were sitting next to each other, hanging out, and he doesn't join the 12 disciples. Why do they care so much? This could not look more irrational. What does Jesus say in verse 3? They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That's why. But Jesus says, I have said these things to you in verse 4, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I'm telling you now so that when it happens, you'll remember that I told you. He's preparatory honesty. This is the opposite of seeker sensitive. Seeker sensitive is tell them nothing bad. Tell them everything is going to be awesome. Tell them nothing. And then we'll maybe get to those harder things later if we can. Jesus is the opposite of that. Here's how hard it's going to be to follow me. Here's how difficult it's going to be. And here's going to be the reason they don't know me, and you can't do anything about that. Because they know what Jesus told Nicodemus, which we'll get to in a minute. He tells them all the reasons not to follow. This is a loving bluntness from Jesus, which does eliminate false disciples. 
They've heard him say, Luke 14, 26 and following, if anyone comes to me, Jesus, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You think of these words and you think, Jesus, these are harsh. I have to hate them. No, no. In your comparison to your love for me, that you will go with me even if it costs you all those relationships. That's what it's like. And then he gives an example. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough, meaning money, resources, to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, anyone of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See, disciples have already heard all of this stuff. And it's all coalescing this moment, hours before the cross. And it's going to strengthen them when it actually comes. That's why Jesus says that he did it. I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you remember it and you're strengthened in the moment. The apostles did not blink in the book of Acts when the heat came. They knew that it was coming. So they preached the gospel. They get thrown in jail. They get miraculously let out of jail. They go right back to where they were and preach the gospel again. All the way up to the Apostle Paul, who gets stoned to the point to where everybody's convinced this man is dead. They drag him out of town. He's not dead. He gets back up and goes back into the town. They were ready for this. They were prepared for this. This is, they, they got to watch the game film. Jesus sat him in the room and said, here's what the enemy is going to do. Shows them on tape so that when they do that, when the enemy conducts himself in that way, they got it. They're aware. They knew that was coming from that angle. They knew when they set up like that, that attack was going to come like that. They were ready. They were prepared. Jesus didn't mince any words, but he didn't also do it uncalculating. Un, uh, because he says in the verse 4 continues, I do not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? So his, his remarks are fitting his departure. He's like, I didn't tell you this when I recruited you off of the beach of the Sea of Galilee or Matthew when I found you sitting at a tax collector's table, just like you don't tell th three years ago, just like when you, when you, if you are a father and you are a police officer, you don't tell your three-year-old what could happen to you that day. He can't handle that. He, he can't comprehend that. But you've got to tell your 12-year-old that. They can understand that. They can grasp what daddy's really doing. And what could really happen? They couldn't bear the weight when Jesus recruited them, but they can bear the weight now. They must bear the weight now. They've been with him for three years, and he is about to be gone. And while Jesus was on earth, he said this, um, because I was with you. When he's on earth, he's the lightning rod. Who hates the disciples right now? Nobody. They're all still thinking the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees cut the head off the snake and the body will die. So all we got to do is get rid of Jesus. So no hate's coming on the disciples. They're not getting yelled at. Nobody wants to kill them. Nobody's trying to arrest them falsely and get them crucified. They don't care about them at all, but they will. 
when Jesus is gone, it's all going to be on them. All the heat's going to be on them. So he's preparing them for that when they become the targets of the persecution of the world. But he says, and I'm going to him who sent me, but none of you asks me, where are you going? Well, if you remember back to verse 36 of chapter 13 and then the beginning of chapter 14, he gets asked by Peter and Thomas, where are you going? But what we understand from this passage is says, you guys asked me where I was going because you didn't want me to go, not because you actually really wanted to know where I'm going and what that means. You still don't understand. You're fixated on your loss and not my mission, Jesus is saying. And I know why, verse 6, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And I know why you're fixated on that, because I know who you are. I made you. I understand your frailty. This is a tender, loving shepherd that he senses a quiet panic in the flock. I've been talked in two chapters. He senses a quiet panic in the flock, and he doesn't dismiss it. He doesn't pretend it's not there. He addresses it with acknowledgement and remedy, not with rebuke, but with encouragement. Because he's a loving shepherd. He knows what his flock needs tender loving shepherd he's going to address that he has just gone on a a uh, litany of pain that's coming their way he he talked a little bit about this the the holy spirit at the end of chapter 15 he's gonna talk a lot about him now this is how you endure verse 7 nevertheless i tell you the truth it is to your advantage that i go away for if i do not go away the helper meaning the holy spirit will not come to you but if i go i will send him to you Jesus addresses the sorrowful hearts of the disciples with his number one remedy. His number one remedy. They are sorrowing, losing their Savior, and now being told that they are going to be hunted like dogs. What's the number one remedy? Jesus, you have everything at your fingertips. You have all knowledge. You have all wisdom. You have all power. What could possibly comfort them, equip them to endure the most? What does he say? The helper is going to come. He is what should encourage them to the most, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is communicating that if we have the Holy Spirit, then the pain of persecution is negligible. It's not even worth thinking about. The Spirit, he says, is our advantage. Do you see that? It is to your advantage that I go away. Now, how many of us have ever sat and thought, I know I have, I would much rather have Jesus physically here than the Holy Spirit within me. In levels of just gut-level honesty, I would rather have that. But when we think like that, what we're saying is that we do not understand the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We don't really understand it because Jesus said, it's to your advantage. It's better to have the Holy Spirit than to have me. It ushers in this permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit into each disciple. Jesus, at this time, where is he? He's in one room, in one building, in one town, in one country, on one continent. What's going on in Africa at this time? Is Jesus there? Not physically. Well, what's going on in Australia? There's people that live on that continent. What's going on in Siberia? What's going on in Southeast Asia? What's going on in North America? Jesus is not in any of those places. He's only right here. But when the Holy Spirit comes, where is the Holy Spirit? He is everywhere that Christians are. 
the very presence of God indwelling us everywhere that Christians are. It's better for us to not have Jesus physically present and not in the Hollywood kind of spin. The coach can't make it to the championship game. The kids have to do it without the coach physically there. But then they realized they really had it in them all along. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is not Mighty Duck 17 or whatever one we're on now. Jesus is saying it is better because the spirit will actually be in you. Not just some kind of good feeling that will motivate, will motor on based on his memory. We wouldn't. The Pharisees knew that. You see that in the book of Acts. They're like, if this isn't real, it's just going to go away. Nobody continues on after their leader's gone and just upholding his memory. Not some zealous cult. They don't do that. You kill the leader, he's gone. The whole thing's over. But it's not because God is indwelling us as Christians. That's what Jesus is saying. He's our guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, Jesus also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Jesus sent him, and we can't be separated from him. He's, in a sense, the Trinity's earnest money. He's putting it down. I'm going to pay the full note, and you will have the whole house. And that's what the Holy Spirit represents to us. But he has work to do in the world and in the church. Jesus says this in verse 8 about what he's going to do in the world. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's Jesus' assessment, summarization of the Spirit's powerful presence in the world. Not yet the church, but in the world. Three specific ways. He's going to convict concerning sin, convict concerning righteousness, and convict concerning judgment. D.A. Carson described this section like this. He said, just as Jesus forced a division in the world by showing that what it does is evil, so the paraclete, meaning the Holy Spirit, the helper, will do the same thing. Verse, verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe me. This is how the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world concerning sin. They do not believe me. The Spirit's presence will make the world's love of sin known via, by way of, their lack of belief in Christ. They disregard and they hate Jesus because they love their sin and vice versa. They love their sin, therefore they hate Christ. How will the Spirit's presence do this? Do you remember when Jesus spoke with Nicodemus in John 3 and he talked about you must be born again? That's where that famous phrase comes from and Peter reiterates it in 1 Peter. What does he say? He said, verse 5 of John 3, Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Spirit's birthing again involves you becoming aware of your sinfulness, your desperate need for a Savior. I am so sinful and so wretched that I must be saved. And you call out to Christ in faith and repentance, and that brings salvation. But why were you able to acknowledge and know your sin? Because the Spirit made you alive and made you able to see it. 
and you call out and you cry out. And so then the world now exists like this. There are people walking around who have seen that, who have understood their sin, have called out to Christ and have received eternal life, have been born again. And there are those who don't. There are those who can see that and they don't get it. Why? They don't want to give up their sin. They hate the light. They want to run into the darkness. So the Spirit comes and convicts the world. Some of the world that he convicts will repent and believe. Some will not. That's his work in the world as it regards sin. But his second action that he does when the world is concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Well, that's perplexing concerning righteousness, but then Jesus is gone. He's going to the Father. How do they connect? What Jesus had to do to, in order to save sinners was earn perfect righteousness. And he can't have been truly said to have earned perfect righteousness if the Father was unwilling to receive him back. So the death, the resurrection, is ultimately nothing without the ascension. He has to ascend back to the Father. That's the symbol. That's the evidence that, Jesus, I'm accepting your sacrifice as true, earned, perfect righteousness. And so Jesus is saying, that's why I have to go back. That's why I'm going. And the world has its own version of righteousness, does it not? What is righteous right now in the world? What would people say? You are living correctly. You are living in a way that history will reflect kindly on you. We would call that utter sinfulness. That's what the world says. It's the way for history to look back on you and go, great job. You're awesome. The righteousness is deficient. It's backwards. It's upside down. Christ's righteousness is absolutely not that. And the Holy Spirit's presence is going to make that fact impossible to ignore. There are two standards of righteousness that exist on the planet. Christ's and the ever-changing world's. And the Holy Spirit's the only one who can make you see the difference. The earned righteousness of Christ and the fabricated false righteousness of the world. His presence makes that known. And then lastly, he will convict concerning judgment. Verse 11. Because the ruler of this world is judged. The Spirit's presence in this world is a, is a reminder, is a pronouncement of judgment upon the kingdom of darkness and its dark prince. That judgment has come in a sense. It's not fully realized, but it has come in the victory of the cross. It's pre is proof, the Holy Spirit being present in the life of believers, is proof that the returning judge will indeed return. Satan will be bound and cast into the lake of fire forever. And the Spirit's presence is just a preview to that. That that is coming. That if Satan, the ruler, is judged and condemned, it will be, have to be true for all evil and evildoers that are beneath him, that are under his influence and under his rule. So the world's flawed judgment is, is on a clock. Flawed judgment of saying, no, this is good. These are laws that we should pass in our culture. These are good. Flawed judgment, sinful, darkened judgment. And Jesus is saying through the Holy Spirit, we'll realize that. And there is a preview of what is to come. And it will be exposed and made clear on the last day. So even in the Holy Spirit's work in the world, it comforts us because someone is in control. God is in control, even of the lost world. But it's also going to be dealt with, ultimately. And then lastly, restoration to right and good is imminent. The Holy Spirit's proof of that. And then we land in this comfort place in verses 12 through 15, here at the end, when Jesus says, 
I still have many things to say to you now. But you cannot, if you were a disciple, would you just be like, good to know, Jesus, you've been taking it easy on us this whole time. Good night. What else is coming? But this is a loving shepherd. He doesn't lead his sheep to, to whitewater rapids to drink. Where does he take them? To still waters. He doesn't take them to fields where it's a, you know, it's a mixture. It's got some poison ivy, but it's got some good bahia grass. You know, he just takes them to just clean, manicured fields. You eat anything you see here. It's easy to digest. Now I don't have to show any, uh, any undue discernment. He doesn't overwhelm them. He progressively strengthens them. That's what sanctification is. It's like coaching Little League for six-year-olds, which I currently do as a side job right now for free. You, you don't teach them, here's how you turn double plays. Hey, here's how we do signals. Here's how you can steal uh, home on the, when the pitcher's taking too long on the mound. You can't, I'm the pitcher, I'm taking too long on purpose because you don't have your helmet on straight. So we're not teaching you all of those things. We're teaching you what is appropriate for your age, what you can bear. Same for Jesus with his disciples. You can't bear it now. I have more to say, but you can't bear it now. But, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He's going to guide you into all the truth. You're not going to be left in my absence without a guide. And he's a guide. He's not a cattle driver. He's guiding us. We're not left without a guide. We have a guide. And he's not going to speak on his own authority. He's not making up new stuff. He's not going to confuse you. It's not like you're, you, you've been, I've been teaching you Hindi, and now you're going to have to learn Arabic. No, it's all going to be the same language. We're, we're adding new things, but nothing that's contrary to what's prior been spoken. Nothing that's contrary to Bible. The Holy Spirit's not going to come and override Bible. He's going to illuminate you to Bible. And then you specifically, you 12, are going to have a special role in verse, 15, or verse uh, 13. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Declare to them the things that are to come. These 12 disciples, the Holy Spirit's going to inspire them and their, their protégés, their, their associates, and the likes of Mark and Jude, to write the New Testament. Because 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture, nothing in the Bible comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy, nothing in the Bible was ever produced by the will of man. Well, then how did we get it, Peter? Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we got the Bible, the rest of the Bible. And Jesus declared it right here to these disciples. The Holy Spirit's role, verse 14, is to glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. He's declaring the words of Christ to the disciples. He's not making up his own things. This is one of the great distortions of the charismatic movement, is that they yank the Holy Spirit out of his role and make him something that he's not. He's making up new things. We need fresh revelation. Doesn't matter if it collates with the Bible. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And we, all we talk about is him. And all we fixate is on him. But what does verse 14 say? He will glorify who? Christ. Not himself. That doesn't denigrate his divinity one iota. 
not at all. He is of one essence with the Father and the Son, eternally coexisting as an equal member of the Trinity. But nevertheless, how are people saved? By believing in the Holy Spirit or by believing in Christ? The Trinity, in his own wisdom, decided that the, that the people will be saved. His people will be redeemed and called to himself through the second member. Faith in the second member. The Spirit's role in that is to regenerate hearts so that they profess faith in Christ. That's why he's not the fixture of all, but he yet remains God of all. So we don't take him out of his position. We highlight where he is and what he's said to be. The one who glorifies Christ, who speaks Christ's words, that there is what is called in theology an economical understanding of the Trinity. Who does what? What does the Father do? What does the Son do? What does the Spirit do? What's the economics of it? It doesn't make them unequal in any way. It doesn't distort them or contort them out of, of being truly God. But nevertheless, we don't want to say what's not true about each member because we are Bible people. So we speak what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, who is truly God, because verse 15 says, All the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Where's Jesus getting it from? He's getting it from the Father. And then Jesus, it's his words, and then the Holy Spirit's the, the effector to us as truly God. Jesus didn't say anything different from the Father. The Spirit's not saying anything different from Christ. The Father never contradicts or reprimands or corrects the Spirit. There's no contradiction inside the Trinity whatsoever. One commentator described it like this. He said, there exists between the persons of the Trinity an eternal, voluntary, assumed relationship of love and friendship, each working for the glory and honor of the others. That's the Spirit speaking in unison with the Trinity, the Trinitarian representative dwelling in us and comforting us because a triune God speaks with one voice, one voice. The Spirit uniquely brings that voice to the church collectively when we're all together and individually as he dwells within all of us. In conclusion, the times indeed are perilous, are they not? We understand that. And John Calvin said of this moment, he said, none of these things which Jesus has spoken are superfluous, meaning extra, unnecessary. For since wars and contests await the disciples, it is necessary that they should be provided beforehand with the necessary arms. Yet he also means that if they meditate deeply on this teaching, they will be fully prepared for resistance. Let us remember that when he said that what then he said to the disciples is also spoken to us. And first, we ought to understand that Christ does not send his followers into the field unarmed. We are not unarmed for the times that we live in. True conflict and true warfare, that's, we are engaged in that. That is very real. And I, we all know of people who have lost jobs or are about to lose jobs for being unwilling to bend upon the truth and even things worse than that. But we're also prepared for it. We've been told in the book of Acts chapter 14 that through many trials and tribulations, we enter the kingdom of God. It sounds contrary to what Jesus said earlier in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This sounds contrary to that. You talked about all this peace, Jesus, and now you're talking about war. But it's not actually contrary at all. It fits hand in glove. 
We have peace e internally, though the war rages all around us. We, we know we'll be hated, we know we'll be persecuted, but we also know that we're indwelt by the very Spirit of God, equipped to endure, having unfathomable, unworldly peace that nobody else can really even comprehend. It assures us that our Savior sits on the throne of heaven, ruling all things. And when we think about the phrase, I'm just throwing myself at the mercy of God. If God is not merciful, then that's meaningless. If God is not in control, then that's meaningless. He has to be sovereign and merciful, and we know that he is both. Therefore, we are made able to endure. We know what we are called to do. We know this charge that we read from Jesus to the disciples. And we know who equips us for this calling. It's his spirit. He said it in 14, 15, and 16. And it is a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. We know that. And it's an even greater privilege to be indwelt by his spirit. A spirit that guarantees our permanent place in the kingdom of God that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever long after anything that we've ever experienced on this blue marble is forgotten. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for telling us the truth, for telling us what will happen, for telling us that the world will hate us. And nobody would sign up for that if we were not made to see the great glories of the gospel by the regenerating work of your spirit. We would have no understanding of the beauty of Christ towards us. You tell us how terrible it's going to be. We have no eyes to see the glory of Christ. Then why would we ever do that? But because we do have that understanding, because we have been enlightened and indwelt by your spirit, we can know and say with the New Testament that the glories that are to come are not even worth being compared to the sufferings we will endure here. And there have been brothers and sisters throughout the history of your church that have said that same thing while the flames crawled up their legs, while the guillotine came down on their heads, while every price was paid, while every drop of their blood was spilled, and they are forever in glory, worshiping you, unashamed and entirely grateful that they endured by the power of your spirit. Lord, we know that in the past couple hundred years in the West, and particularly in our country, your church has been allowed to grow, but now we seem to have grown very fat and very weak. We are very slow uh, and very unwilling to feel discomfort. Father, please be shaping us. Help us to be encouraging each other as we each encounter the, these sufferings and this difficulty. We don't have synagogues to be put out of, but we have social media to be banned from. We don't, we don't have synagogues to be put out of, but we have extracurriculars that we could be barred from joining. We have jobs that we could lose. We have circles of influence that could go away. So, Father, we pray that we would be able to encourage one another with these words that we might carry on the mantle that Christ laid out that we say these things so that you don't fall away that we would remind one another of the powerful presence of your spirit Lord that just because other groups distort him may we not forsake him 
We certainly need your Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to make us more aware of you. May we attribute the great things that we are able to endure and to able to be strengthened through to you, rightly so. We can't fathom you as Trinity, but yet we know that you are. And if you remain in some, to some extent unfathomable, then that yet just proves again that this is not some philosophy that a human has invented, that it is handed down directly from the heavens, that this is eternal truth. May we be committed to it, and may we grow ever more eager to see the other side of the Jordan River, the other side into Canaan into the celestial city, into Zion's hill, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth. May we long for our home, and may we encourage one another as we trod this path. Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for your presence in the church. We thank you for the unassailable truth of the gospel. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.